I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 42 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. I get asked all the time from the folks who listen to our show or those who follow the feed of the Society of Golf Historians, why don't you write a book? Today's podcast will shine a light on my why. Because today, I interview a brilliant writer in Stephen Proctor, author of Monarch of the Green, to talk about the Hall of Fame golf writer and author, Bernard Darwin. Their writing is a stark reminder to me to, as the kids say, stay in your lane. Before we jump into our conversation with Stephen Proctor on Bernard Darwin, I wanted to say a word about the Golf Heritage Society. The Golf Heritage Society is a nonprofit organization dedicated to celebrating the history of golf through education, collecting, and hickory play. Check out www.golfheritage.org to learn more about the organization that I am proud to be a member of. Now today on our show, we dive into the history of Bernard Darwin, one of the greatest golf writers who ever lived. His poetic words of the spirit of our game and its heroes paint the kind of vivid picture that belongs in a museum. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the 42nd episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Delighted to be here, Connor. Enjoyed it the last time and really looking forward to this time. Yeah, the last time you joined us on the show was to talk about young Tom Morris and your new book, Monarch of the Green. Can you give everyone an update on the success of your book? Well, you know, the book has done better than anything I ever would have dreamed. It's been very well received and been very positively reviewed all over the world, in Spain and Australia, in Britain, where it was published, and in the United States. Uh, it was nominated for uh, the Biography of the Year in the Telegraph Sports Book Awards, which is a fairly big deal there in Britain. It did not win, but it was still a great honor to be nominated. And so it's done super well, and I'm very, very pleased. I understand you're also up for what I like to call the Heisman of uh, Golf Book Awards, which is the Herbert Warren Wind. I did uh, get nominated for that as well by um, by my publishing house. But as we both know, Kevin Robbins' very nice book about Payne Stewart won that. And so, you know, it's it's just I never expected either of those things, and I certainly never expected to win. But I was delighted to be nominated and to have my book considered, you know, at that level by, by – uh, by, you know, excellent critics. So it was, I'm, very, I'm very proud of how it's done. And uh, mostly that my main goal was to put Tommy back in the conversation about golf. And I feel like I see his name more and I see more conversation about him. And so I feel best about that of all things, really. And really, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is it the only book written specifically about young Tom Morris? I'm not aware of another one that's dedicated solely to him. Am I wrong? No, you are not wrong. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do it was that, is that Tommy 
has never had a story separate from being the son of old Tom. And, you know, obviously old Tom is and always will be the most influential person in the history of golf. But, you know, you might make an argument that part of what got him into that position was the tremendous fame that his son achieved. And uh, so, yes, I, I really felt like Tommy deserved to be separated from his father and considered on his own merits. Let me let me ask you this. So I, is there a way where you do you like track the success of the book? Like if I wrote a book and I would never will, I don't I'm not that talented. But if I ever wrote it, if there was a metric for tracking it, I would be addicted to it. Well, you know, you can't stop yourself from looking at at Amazon for right. reviews right. or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, you only get sales reports twice a year on how many you sold in a yeah, six month Yeah, that's probably a good year. thing. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the one that I've only gotten one, and I had sold almost a 1,000 books in the first six months, which I think would be considered quite good for a first-time author that really was completely unknown when the book was published, certainly in the history field anyway. And uh, so I haven't gotten a second six months report, probably be delayed by coronavirus. A lot of things have been. Uh, but so, no, I'm very pleased with how the book is done and how it's been received. I never did it to make money, and I don't feel very confident that I will. It takes a lot to get a thing like that done, especially if you're doing it in a different country. So I had to invest a little bit in it to get it accomplished. And uh, But the point is, uh, I did it because I love doing it and because I thought the story was important. And that's everything that matters to me. You know, if I if I get to break even, I'd be thrilled. Yeah, I, you know how much I love the book, folks, and uh, I, I've said a lot about it on Twitter, Facebook, and obviously this podcast. I think it's brilliant. You have to buy it. So it goes right into the next question I have for you: uh, How can listeners find Monarch of the Green? What's the best way for them to buy that book? Well, you know, in the United States, the easiest thing to do is just to buy it on Amazon. If you're in Britain then uh, Berlin Publishers is selling it. And it's, it's available anywhere in the world, really, on ABE Books. I, bu I buy a lot of my books for historic research on ABE Books. You can find a lot of great deals. It's kind of a compendium of India independent sellers. Uh, and so that, that's another place to find it. I saw eight or ten. I, I did sneak a peek at ABE Books the other day, and there were a lot of copies on there for uh, pretty good prices. That's great. So it's early yet, but I'm also aware that you're working on a new book. Would you mind sharing what your new book will cover? No, not at all. I'm happy to do that, Connor. I, I am working on a book now about what I would consider to be golf's greatest generation. And it begins in 1890 when John Ball becomes the first Englishman and the first amateur to win the Open. And that occurs at a time when golf is really starting to take off in England. And it's as if... Uh, gasoline had been thrown onto the uh, flickering flame of golf there in England when John Ball wins there. And so between 1890 and the First World War, just about everything that you think of as the modern game has its starting point there. And uh, so it traces, uh, you know, all the, the great battles between Scotland and England for supremacy on the golf field, the evolution of clubs and balls, uh, the organization of the game all takes place there, the formation of the rules committee and all the toing and froing over that. So it's just about the game growing up and becoming the game that you know now, uh, as opposed to the game that started with uh, Alan Robertson and to old Tom, and then Tommy helped to spread it down into England. This is kind of the continuation of what Tommy wrought, if you, if you think of it that way. Absolutely. And I, I can't even imagine the difficulty 
of writing that book. It's so much different than the project you undertook with young Tom. You have one subject matter. Now you have basically a quarter century of research over great players and technology all coming together to talk about, you know, the transition into this modern game. I'm sure that's a different endeavor for you, right? It's a very, it's more difficult for sure than the Tommy book, but I feel good about the way it's going. Um, I've probably written two thirds of it, at least in a first draft form. And obviously there's still a lot of water to go under the bridge after that, but I feel good about the way it's going. Uh, it has an advantage over the Tommy book in, sen- in the sense that there's quite a bit more material written by the characters who are in the situations that you're dealing with. So, for instance, if you're writing about um, the 1897 Open Championship, you, you have Hilton's account by himself of what he was thinking at every moment on the golf course. Uh, and that really helps to create more drama. And I had already done a good bit of research on the period up to the war before I wrote the Tommy book because I didn't feel that you'd be able to understand where Tommy fit in unless you had done that. So I was pretty well prepared, but I did have a lot of other work to do when this started, and that is mainly to read all 23 years of the golfing annual and if, and a lot of newspaper articles and things like that, which I did during the uh, year that the Tommy book was in process of getting published. And then continued on after that and uh, started writing in January this year. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting that out to people who love this kind of thing. And I think, I think there'll be a lot, particularly for that era. What, what inspired you to write it, Stephen? Um, Bernard, honestly. Um, uh, the, the whole thing that got me writing was Bernard Darwin to begin with. Uh, because when, when I first started looking into history, you naturally come across him right away. And... I just became enchanted and entranced by the way he wrote about it, saw it, thought of it, and it definitely has infused, for sure, my thinking about that this whole age that 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 I'm trying to write about now. So I I, I also became really attracted to the idea of characters no one's heard of, like John Ball. Uh, and John they should Ball, know, right? I mean, they should. should He's got nine majors, folks. Nine. That's what I'm saying. And no one's ever heard of him. And uh, same with, you know, more people have probably heard of Harold Hilton because he came to the United States and won. Uh, But honestly, it's just I feel like in reading Bernard, you just get a sense that there's so many heroes of golf that no one. Well, he has a wonderful line that really is the line is my motto. And he's writing about Harold Hilton in an essay. And he says, you know, I'm not trying to write a statistical article. This is just a remembrance And he says, but still, as the years go ruthlessly on and make dim the brightest of records, I had better set out his victories. And that is that is sort of my motto, because the years have gone ruthlessly on. And so many great things, Freddie Tate, all these great characters are pretty much lost to history. So one of the things I like to do is to tell it as a story that any person can relate to. And that way I feel the one little i don't i'm not a foundational historian that digs up original research per se uh but i can tell the story and i feel like the story brings in an audience that ordinarily does not read golf history uh at least not serious golf yeah, history I, I think that's one of your great skills with monarch of the green is it's a historical book but it's not it's not read as reading a true informed history book that is stating events in chronological order, if that makes sense. No, what I'm trying to do, uh, Connor, is call, I call narrative history. 
So everything that's in the book is historically accurate and researched to the nth degree, but it's not presented as a historic tract. It's just told to you as a story of how this unfolded. So I think one of the things people may get out of book two is they know a lot of things about that period, but they don't realize how those things unfolded in real time. And what this will do is bring you into real time as the great characters of that age are emerging. You, you actually realize uh, different things about their feats and about the circumstances under which they were achieved that I don't think you would have known otherwise. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you the worst question you ask a writer. Uh, when can we buy it? <laughs> well, I, you know, the thing about it is you, once you get the book written, somebody has to agree to publish it. So, That's true. We know uh, it's going to happen. Come on. I, I have, you know, you know, by contract, when you, when you sell one book, you are obligated to start with your own publisher by contract and they have the right of first refusal. And I'm very hopeful uh, that they will want to do it again. And of course, one of the things that I do think helps you a little bit when you get nominated for awards is that probably makes them more inclined to give you another try. But, you know, I feel confident someone will publish it. Uh, you know, I, I feel like my first book has made enough of an impact that somebody will want this, I feel, and probably my own publisher, who I adore working with. So we'll see. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. I really, truly mean that. I think that is a really fascinating part of our history. It's one of the histories uh, that is literally like my bread and butter, where I like to like, just think about and read about is that transitional years before 1900. I know you're going a little bit further into that, but the world was just exciting when it came to golf. There was invention and breakthroughs and great golfers and great amateurs. I mean, this is still in the age of the amateur and you have professionals making their name and it's just, it's, it's a perfect period of golf to really discuss. No, I think so. And I feel like there's probably a far larger audience for this book than maybe the Tommy book because there are so many people playing pre 1900 Hickory golf and this, this is their era. And so I think, I think there'll be an audience for it, but you know, I do them because it's something that I want to do and, uh, hopefully they works out as well as the other one has. I'm excited about it. So let's, let's go from one writer and Stephen Proctor to Bernard Darwin, grandson of the famous Charles Darwin. Uh, he's been regarded as one of the greatest golf scribes of all time. And he led the way for golf writers who would follow. What was life like for Bernard Darwin growing up? Well, Bernard was born in 1876, so the year after young Tommy dies. And he, his mother, unfortunately, died in childbirth. And he and his father, Francis, ended up moving in with his grandparents, of course, Charles Darwin, and uh, at Down House in Sussex, where the Darwins lived. And so he grew up in a family of extraordinarily brainy people. Charles Darwin had seven children, five boys and two girls. And three of them were knighted for contributions to science in Britain. Uh, Several of the others were were prominent in the arts. But every one of them was wildly successful in whatever career path they chose. So he grew up around really super intelligent people who read a lot. And uh, Bernard himself read a great deal all his life, but mostly the same books over and over, to be honest. He had very peculiar reading habits. But so he grew up in a very smart family and was destined to do something great. Big, probably because of that. Yeah. So he, he grew up with his grandfather. I mean, I know, uh, I think he, uh, Charles Darwin died when he was a young, uh, when yes. he was just a boy. 
Do we know if uh, Bernard felt the shadow of evolution, if you will? Oh my gosh, yes. You know, in 1859, actually the year of Alan Robertson's death, that was the year that Charles Darwin published On the Origin of the Species. And I think a modern reader will have difficulty understanding what a sensational impact that book caused at that time in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. You know, obviously the idea of evolution goes right to the core of a lot of people's religious beliefs. It was even more so then. And so Darwin grew up um, in a way that was, he had a hard time escaping that shadow. In fact, you know, when he wrote his own memoir, The World That Fred Made, uh, and in, later in Green Memories, he would include essays called On Being a Darwin. And uh, it's a funny little thing, you know, he, um, he couldn't go anywhere. It would be like if you were trying to go somewhere as Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods. Everywhere he went, people's first question for him went right to that. And so in this essay, I'm just going to read you, Bernard loved to read aloud. And so I think it's good for us to read him aloud. He, 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 he served in the army in Macedonia as a younger man and uh, in World War II. And um, he, uh, he knew of this army soldier there that was giant, very, very tall. And so he has this little passage in his essay on being a Darwin. There was an officer of enormous stature. I never met him, but I heard a story of him, very likely apocryphal, which pleased me. It was said that he was so well accustomed to being asked his height that when he saw a perfect stranger preparing to accost him, he merely said, six feet, ten inches, and passed on his way. I quote that story because I have, all my life, been in the same boat with him, though in a different way. When anybody begins a sentence, what relation, or was the great, I at once know what he or she is going to answer, to ask, and answer, grandfather. In the circumstance, I may presumably hold myself lucky, that only one or two old friends call me monkey, or words to that effect. Oh, I love that, right? So he, yeah. he handled it quite well then, with humor. Yeah, no, he did. He, he, you know, Bernard was a person who saw the positive in life all the time. Even in his later years, you know, in, during the Second War, his home there in Down in Sussex was bombed, or nearly bombed, and he and his family had to flee to the Cotswolds and live there, and he he writes a wonderful essay in a book called Pack Clouds Away about that. But the thing that is so mar remarkable about the essay is that his main thought is to explore his new home and find all the wonderful things about it. So he doesn't dwell much on the negative. You know, the other thing I really like about him in a lot of his writings is he has an un unbelievable wit, yes, but he has the best self-deprecating sense of humor. And to any one of his accomplishments. I mean, he's just perfect with the word. Yes, he is. You know, and uh, part of that is he just had the most remarkable education. Any person who was an upper crust kid in Britain, as he was, you know, he went to a very fancy little primary school and then on to Summerfields and from there to Eton and from there to Cambridge. And the, the education that the children in public schools in Britain got was really extraordinary. You know, they were schooled in what we consider to be, um, you know, the rounded scholar sort of way. They read all the classics. They knew how to speak Latin, often Greek. And uh, so he was a extremely educated person. And that obviously contributed greatly to his skill as a writer, not to mention being around such an interesting and eccentric family all his life. Yeah, I suppose with the last name Darwin, you have to have a little bit of uh, self-depreciation in your humor. 
<laughs> otherwise, oh otherwise, people would just think of as a hoity-toity, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I think uh, people had a hard time sometimes um, knowing what to make of Bernard. You know, but but he people loved him. He was a very very uh, beloved and popular guy, even though he had his quirks. Yeah, you know, I think the the amazing thing about him is, uh, and we'll get into his profession here a little bit later in, but. One of the, the great things about him is he came from a family of greatness. And as you said, mo- many of his family members were great in their individual fields. Um, and he found greatness in his, in, in a field that he pretty much invented for himself. You know, there's a couple things about Bernard that, that I think are uh, noteworthy as far as, as far as all that goes. He was one of the greatest golfers probably ever to write about golf, honestly. He was a very top-flight golfer, and I think that informed him on multiple levels. Um, you know, understanding the agony of the golfer on the course, understanding the insane little ways all of us have as golfers, and so he—I think he had a very deep understanding of the game that comes partly from his inquisitive nature and partly from his incredible skill at playing it. Yeah, I, I think taking off from that, there were amateurs before him like Hilton that wrote about the game, but that was not their profession. I mean, this was his profession and he was an amateur golfer as well. What do we know about his early days in golf? Do we know when he started and maybe go into his collegiate uh, 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 career? Sure. Bernard's father got interested in golf when he was about, Bernard was about eight years old. And so they started taking holidays, golfing holidays as part of their family ritual and they would be, go to Felixstowe initially and then to other courses that were seaside courses. And Bernard fell in love with the game as a boy. He was always a fanatical sports fan. Um, he, From childhood, he would make up his own cricket teams and rugby teams of the stars of Britain. He followed uh, all sports quite passionately, uh, particularly anything that had to do with Cambridge or Eton. And uh, he was... He was just a rabid, rabid fan to the point where, you know, during a match that involved his favorite team, you know, he, it would be a matter of life and death, quite literally for him, during however many hours the game took place, and then he would return to being something like a normal human after that. <laughs> so many of he, us are like that, right? <laughs> yeah, no, he was, he, was, he was the insane fan of all time, probably, particularly for certain events like the Cambridge boat race with Oxford certain other things he had just a great deal of passion for all those things and uh was was a crazy fan so i think that also really informs all the writing that he does and and he had some success correct at cambridge yes he's he went up to cambridge in 1895 and he played on the golf team all three years and as a captain of the team in 1897 in his final year there In 1898, he entered his first amateur championship, played quite well, um, and he would enter the amateur championship overall like around 26 times, I believe it was, and he had a number of really outstanding finishes in it. He he finished in the round of 16 three times, so you were talking about fields now here well in excess of 100 that are whittled down by matches, so he got to the final 16 three times to the quarterfinals once, and to the semifinals twice in 1909 and 1921. And both times that he got to the semifinal, he lost to the eventual winner. 
So he was he was quite the golfer. But I think the thing that really makes it clear to you is that in 1902, there was Hoylake began a new thing called the International Amateur Match, which featured teams from Scotland and from England playing against one another. And that's really the sort of root of all international competition we have today, like Walker Cups, Ryder Cups. There'd been a great deal of passion for that leading up to it. And Hoylake, always the forward-thinking club, was the one to seize the, seize the day and host it. But that first year, um, the, the English team was picked by Hilton, Horace Hutchinson, and Charles Hutchings, all senior citizen golfers. And Bernard was one of the first ten picked. So that just tells you what level of stature he had as a young golfer. So I also understand that much like uh, Bobby Jones, he had a little bit of a temper on the golf course. Uh, can you share um, any famous stories of Darwin's golf temperament? He was borderline psychotic on the <laughs> golf course, Connor. You it love was, it. it. It was insane. He would do things like, so he once missed a short little putt at Woking, which was his home course there near London when he, when he, when he lived in London. And he fell down on his knees and threw his putter up toward the sky, held his putter up toward the sky and cursed the gods, cursed the golf course, asked the gods if they felt they'd meted out enough punishment, so forth and so on. He, he could also be phenomenally rude to partners. Really? So yeah, he, he was playing in the Oxford Cambridge Golfing Society, as he was a member there, of course, and they would tour the nation playing team matches against teams from other clubs as kind of a regular thing during the course of a season. So Bernard and a man named Frank Pennock are playing in a match together against a team from New Luffness. And they go out to a really big lead, and then the, then the holes start melting away, and Bernard, as he would usually do, starts to lose his mind. And then Pennock writes a little thing about it, kind of lovingly, so obviously people ended up forgiving him, talking about how Bernard fell behind then, and he could hear, everyone could hear Bernard talking, quote, under his breath, but quite loudly. And here's what he said. His monologue ran something like this. Those conceited Oxford brats, meaning me, they think they know all about the game, but as soon as they are under pressure, they go to pieces. And then the oaths and the imprecations followed. My Oxford blood chilled. When I came to play a delicate chip over a bunker and fluff the ball into the sand, I felt that the end of the world had come. I wouldn't have been surprised if Bernardo had come up behind me with an unraised putter. Instead, there was deathly silence. When that nightmare match was over, I breathed relief. Oh, hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah, he... We can all identify with that, though. I mean, most of us, you know... Let me ask you this. Now, and totally hypothetical. But do you think it impaired his golfing abilities, that anger, or did it fuel him? Oh, I would say probably impaired uh he was very high strung and he was he was a very pretty good striker of the ball even though he had a little bit of an ungainly swing but he he had difficulties putting he had a really bizarre putting stance where his feet were super wide well outside of his shoulders he was bent over so far that i think his nose was can have been four feet off the ground if it was if it was that far and he uh he was as he wrote about another person not entirely trustworthy uh, with the putts. Oh, that's brilliant. But and now one of the highlights of his career in 1922, uh, he was, he played on the national golf links of America, uh, uh, Walker cup and his, perhaps his greatest golfing accomplishment came at the expense of another 
who fell ill. Maybe you could get into how he became part of that Walker, that inaugural Walker Cup team. He went over to cover it uh, for the newspaper. And the captain of the team was a, a, a very prominent amateur and ultimate winner of the amateur championship named Robert Harris from Carnoustie. And at, when they got to the United States, you know, it was a um, difficult passage by ship and everything. Robert Harris got sick and he couldn't, he got so sick that he wasn't able to play or captain. And of course, there were no other Englishmen there uh, t- to join the team. And so Bernard became the captain and Bernard played. Um, and he actually distinguished himself pretty well. He and uh, Cyril Tolley did get kind of creamed in their foursome match against Francis Wiemet and Jess Sweetser. But when he played in the singles, he played your hero, Bill Founds, and he beat him in the singles. And that was uh, one, of the, one of the peak moments probably of his, of his golfing career. Yeah, I tell you, the Brits, they went up against a murderer's row of uh, the U.S. golf team. I, uh, you had uh, Bill Founds, you had Chick Evans, Robert Gardner, Jesse uh, Guilford, Bobby Jones, Max Markston. You had Francis Wiemet and Jess Sweetster. Oh, Sweetser. I mean, that is an unbelievable... I mean, you could argue that's the greatest Walker Cup team ever put together. There isn't any doubt that it was a really formidable team. And uh, so for Bernard to at least have scored a point uh, in that Walker Cup was a was a great moment for him, you know, a really great moment for him. Now, do you know the story about how he was almost kicked out of the Walker Cup? No, I don't. So you share, you share that one with me. Yeah. We so um, I was doing a little research for the pod, and I, I came across this story. Um, while he was practicing at National Golf Links of America, he was actually hit in the chest by an errant golf ball. And he has, these are his words on the subject. Mind you folks, please forgive me if I misread this. It's my handwriting, which looks a little bit like hieroglyphics. He says, while I was out playing some practice shots, a ball by another practicer hidden from sight hit me in the breastbone. I thought for a moment that here was the state of things, that I, the only substitute was killed. Then I realized I was none for the worse. The ball had been spent and it was now lifeless. <laughs> that is fabulous. I mean, that's this is so perfect. Right? I mean, that's per- that, that, that is Darwin into a T, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, God, that's fabulous. No, I, I may have read that somewhere, but it didn't stick with me, and that was wonderful, Connor. Oh, I just, I, I read that, I, I read it last night, and I was like, oh, my gosh, we have to include this. It's just, I mean, that that is literally, I mean, just to a T. Um, the, the Brits, unfortunately, did not fare so well in that inaugural Walker Cup. No, they were annihilated, and and you can understand why when you when you see the team that America brought out at that time. Yeah. Do we know um, Do we know anything about the match against Phones? Uh, you know, I don't know a lot of the specifics of the other than he won, and I think comfortably. Yeah, I, I've read a couple accounts that he, uh, I think, on a couple occasions, uh, used the stymie to basically get Phones' goat. That would not surprise me. I think it was a fairly common tactic in match play in those aids. So in those days, so uh, like I said, I, I haven't read a specific account of that match. If I'm being honest, so yeah, do we know was was Darwin a proponent of the stymie? You know, back then it was almost a fifty fifty split on people loving it or hating it. Darwin was for the stymie. He was what he liked to refer to as a good conservative, meaning that he didn't want anything to change ever. 
He has a wonderful essay about sandwich, about how he realizes that all the architecture critics are right and that some of the holes are bad and they should be changed. But he loves sandwich and he doesn't want it to change. And that, that would pretty much be his attitude to 90% of things. Yeah. I, I'll read one more quote. This is the last quote I read. Uh, but oh. from that trip, he uh, went to go play some of our greatest golf courses. And he, I have his thoughts here on three of them, including his game, which, again, gets back to the depreciating humor. And again, folks, bear with me. Hieroglyphics. Uh, he, re- he, he writes, my own opinion is that Pine Valley is the hardest of the golf courses he's referring to. That the Lido, judged as a battlefield for giants, is the best, not only in America, but in the world. And that I would rather play at National Golf Links of America than either. Frankly, I am not good enough golfer for Pine Valley or Lido. For that matter, I suppose I'm not a good enough, good enough golfer for the National either. But I can pretend that I am, and I can enjoy that delightful game of pretending. <laughs> He, that's he, burned all over. I love that. He's a fantastic amateur golfer, and he's totally poo-pooing on his own game. I mean, you got to love this guy. Yeah, no, he's that's one of his – he's just so charming. You know, in the end, people forgave him for all of his misdeeds on the course because he was just a phenomenally charming man. You know, I just do want to run really quickly over two three other of his big accomplishments. Please, he, yes. One really important competition called the Gold Vase, the Golf Illustrated Gold Vase in 1919. That was a stroke play competition, and he won that. He won, I think probably his proudest personal moment was he won a competition called the President's Putter, which is uh, an annual competition in the winter at Rye for members of the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society, and it's a huge deal. The putter actually was originally belonged to John Lowe, and I believe he got it from Hugh Kirkcaldy after Kirkcaldy won the 1891 Open. And so you would, if you won, you got to attach your name to the putter on a silver ball that would dangle from it, much in the manner of the original silver club they played for at least back in the 1700s. And he won that, quite proud of that. And then he always played in, he loved mixed foursomes events, and he played in the Warpleston mixed foursomes all the time. Once in 1933, I think it was, with, uh, with Joyce Weatherid, and they won. Naturally, it, it, he's, his count of that is hysterical, mostly about how Joyce won in spite of the dragging her down uh but, but he was quite proud of that accomplishment too and he had another one of his horrible episodes there at the at the foursomes at a different one at stoke poges but he was playing with a woman of course and he hit his drive into a bunker and she was in quite a bad spot in the bunker and had to hit it out backwards so she hits it out backwards but she skulls it wickedly in the process of doing it and so it go runs all the way back to the tee where Bernard had just played from. And his exact words at that moment were, my God, what has the woman done now? <laughs> oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, that is hilarious. Uh, let's get into his writing. So how did Bernard Darwin come to be a writer? I mean, let's go through what was his original chosen profession? How did that come about? And how did he get into being a writer? That's... It, from where he started, it seemed a little different. No doubt of it. No person who had the stature of a Darwin would ever start out to be a golf writer. Just wouldn't be done. Bernard intended to be a lawyer, and he actually started out at Cambridge. He was in Trinity College there as a classic scholar, and he that would have been going on to you know a high degree. But at the end, he decided he wanted to, to do the work of a solicitor, which is not a trial lawyer, but a person who handles legal matters. 
and he graduated, went to London and worked with the firm in what they call the Temple, which is the legal district there in London, and was working as a solicitor, and he hated it. It was really boring, he thought. So then, you know, Bernard had another fixation in life, which was murder cases. He loved murder cases. And so he decided, maybe I'll become a barrister and try cases, and that'll be more interesting. And so he did that, too, took a little bit more study, and he got called to the bar finally in 1903. But he didn't like that job either. He found them both just tedious. And what he really wanted to do was on a golf course. You know, he that was always his first love. And so in 1907, he got just a golden break. A man that he knew named Arthur Croom, who was quite a good writer himself, was doing a little weekly column for the London Evening Standard that was called Tea Shots. And he got hired by the Morning Post there in London, and he recommended Bernard as his replacement for the column. So Darwin took that. I forget what he got, some little tiny bit of money to do it once every Saturday. And uh, he'd only been writing it for like a month when it, he was so sensational out of the gate that he immediately got offered jobs by the Times and by Country Life. And uh, so within a year of writing his first column, he was working for the two of them, making enough money that he, as he liked to say, I could sell my wig and walk out of the temple a free man. So that's how it happened. So, so he was pretty much an instant success, at least Absolutely in writing. Overnight sensation. No, no question of it. I don't think he'd been writing the tee shots column for a month or more before he got offers. That's unbelievable. Because they were so yeah. distinctive. And his voice right away was distinctive. Now, there is a collection of his that you can get of his that was published by the USJ called Tee Shots, which includes some of those pieces. And they're a little bit less sophisticated than some of the other ones. But you can still see uh, the great, great writer he will become right there. And obviously, the Times immediately got onto that, and so did Country Life. Yeah, so would you say, um, I don't know, from a society standpoint, was his choice to be a golf writer, was, would, would that have been considered a step down, if you will, from being a barrister? I assume yes, but you know, help me out there. No question it would be a little bit, uh, but... But it was respectable. Know, it was respectable enough, and uh, the Times and the Country Life were read by every significant gentleman in any case. And so I think the fact that he was working for premier publications made it fine. And and really what he needed to do was he was married and he ended up having three children. And uh, his wife, Eleanor, was a was a was an artist. Um, and they did some children's books together, which she illustrated. But so he it, it was respectable enough, but it wasn't you know, you wouldn't set out to do that. But once he had become a lawyer and everything like that, nobody—I don't—I've never seen anything that suggested his family disapproved. And and just a couple years into starting this writing career uh, in the periodicals, he pens one of my favorite books, uh, "The Golf Courses of the British Isles," which, along with the artwork of Harry Roundtree, paints, in my opinion, just both a visual and verbal masterpiece. Um, what did this first book do for Darwin's notoriety? You know, I think that book really catapulted him to fame even beyond what he was writing in the columns. There had been, you know, Bernard grew up reading Horace Hutchinson, of course. His favorite book about golf was Badminton Golf, which he used to refer to as my dear old badminton. And I take it down gingerly because I'm afraid the binding will finally fall off and all the pages will scatter on the floor. But he read that book, as with all the books he loved, over and over and over again. 
And one of the seminal chapters in that book is called Some Celebrated Links. And that one is written by Hutchinson himself. And it talks about the great golf courses of, of Scotland and the one or two great golf courses that ex- existed in England at the time that that was written. And then, you know, Hutchinson went on to write a couple of other books, most notably British Golf Links, which he published in 1897. So Bernard would have grown up quite familiar with that form. But what happened is he just elevated it to an entirely different level, as you were saying, Connor. You know, he told a story about playing the course, and it was incredibly ingenious the way he could describe a hole in a way that made it more of a story, which something Hutchinson never quite got. Yeah, quite, he painted got, a verbal picture like few others. Like, I've read Hutchinson's work on golf courses, and it's, I don't want to. It's more as a matter of fact than it is strokes of a, uh, of a paintbrush. Exactly. It's an eloquently written description of how the hole is played. But Bernard's is a, an entirely different matter. And I think it would be fun to talk about one example from that. Yeah, that'd be great. You have a quote? So, yes, I do. He, he's describing a course in Wales called Harleck. And he's describing a particular par five. And I don't know how much opportunity you've had to play over in Scotland or England, Connor, but it's not uncommon there to have old stone boundary walls crisscrossing the golf course. Yeah, like North Berwick. Yeah, Muirfield's got a wall down the left side. Yeah. Yeah. So this particular course had a hole, a par five, uh, that had a stone wall running parallel and two other stone walls between which there was a sandy cart path that Bernard described as being full of unspeakable ruts. And so you had to play as near as you possibly could to the one stone wall in order for your next shot to try to reach this par five and two to be able carried over the little corner of the parallel wall and the other two walls to get up to the green. Okay. So it was an easy five if you played it carefully and a hard five uh, a, a hard four if you if you tried the daring shot. And here's how he describes it. And this is what I think elevates his book to being something way above any other golf course description book I've ever read. If, however, we have driven far and sure, we may take the brassy, carrying all three walls at one fell swoop, accomplish a four. Moreover, it is a four that is a real joy to do. For the miserable old gentleman would never attempt that dashing second, but would proceed palkily and by stages, pitching on to the green with his third and getting a commonplace and respectable five. Thereby, he will often win the hole from us who have died a glorious death in the sandy road, but at least we shall have tried to quit ourselves like men. <laughs> does it get better than that? I don't know if it does. It's such... Honestly... I still think that's the best golf book ever written myself. I, I do too. I mean, I literally had it out before this podcast. Uh, it's one of the, if I travel, um, I take generally two books with me, whether I've read them a hundred times, it's McDonald's book and that one. Uh, they are delightful and entertaining. And what I find, if, if this makes any sense to you, and it probably doesn't, but his words seem to have so much life in them. Does that even make sense? Makes perfect sense because I feel like, one of the things that distinguishes Bernard as a person and as a writer is a phenomenal passion for everyday life. He could make everyday things seem so romantic. You know, he has these essays that he writes about traveling to his favorite golf courses, particularly Aberdovey in Wales. That was where his grandparents gr- lived, 
and where he played golf as a child on on holidays at Christmas and things. And he um, his family founded the golf course there. And he loved that place, I think, more than any other place in golf. And he writes these wonderful essays about the stations that he passes as he gets closer and closer and the the feelings that it gives him of romance of what's coming and you know not many people experience life that way and so i think you really put your finger right on it connor there the other thing i think he does amazing um is as much as any writer before or after he has the writing of the heroic like he realized that these men that that donned their jackets or ties and hickory-shafted clubs were not men, they were heroes. And he could capture that as well as anybody. Maybe you could, if you could dive into that. I mean, whether it be Bobby Jones or John Ball, he just had the sense of, that he understood that people want to read about heroes. I agree with you completely, Connor. I think that's a wonderful point. Bernard himself was a tremendous hero worshiper. You know, the age of sport that he grew up in was one of real hero worship. You know, a person like the famous amateur cricketer W.G. Grace, for instance, was one of Bernard's heroes. He wrote an essay about him late in life. But W.G. Grace was easily the most famous person in Britain at the time he was starring in cricket. And the country worshipped him almost as a national hero. And the same was true of Freddie Tate in Scotland. So Bernard both appreciated that and in a lot of ways in his remembrances of them fostered us remembering them in that way because that's how he saw it and how he felt it, exactly as you said, Connor. And here's what his favorite person of all time, without any doubt, is John Ball, who was the winner of eight amateurs and one open championship, as, as we mentioned earlier. And he talks a little bit in his, he writes an essay about John Ball and playing the like in which he's um, lamenting the fact that John, you know, he got older, he moved to Wales, ran off with the maid actually, and moved to Wales and uh, didn't usually come back to Hoylake very often. And here's a little, the ending of his little essay about John Ball. He does not come as often as his friends would like, but when he does, it is a very great occasion Last year, he watched the amateur championship there on one or two days. One of these days, I met a young man who was helping to marshal the crowd. He was pale and agitated and was clearly recovering from a shock. Oh, heavens, he exclaimed. I've nearly done the most ghastly thing I ever did in my life. I saw an old gentleman where I thought he ought not to be. I was just going to shoo him away when I saw that it was John Ball. Poor young man. He was indeed saved in just in time from a dreadful act of profanity. For if there is a golfing shrine upon earth, it is Hoylake, and its deity is John Ball. Oh, that's good. That's so good. And that, I think, encapsulates his view of some of these players. Uh, you know, he, he would literally refer to them as the gods of his youth. Yeah, the gods of his youth. And, and the, the beauty of Darwin is... He lived during some of the most interesting times of golf, right? He, he covered, obviously, John Ball. He, he deified John Ball. But he was also there through one of the greatest moments, uh, one of the greatest golfers of that time, which was the, um, the rise of Bobby Jones. Bernard, uh, you know, actually, the truth is, Connor, that Bernard started writing, of course, in 1908 
for uh, he started covering golf tournaments at that time, even though he had that column for a year. So he did not actually cover an Open Championship until 1908 when James Braid won. And he is, you know, actually Braid became an instant hero and he later wrote a biography about him. But the um, so he saw John Ball and Harold Hilton and them play um, because he was competing in the amateur championship toward, uh, you know, in their heyday. And so he would play, you know, not usually against them. Uh, but but in an amateur that they were also in, and then he would get to stay and see them play, and he saw a lot of the great moments that way. Um, but he didn't actually start writing about golf till well into the age of the triumvirate, you know. Um, but anyhow, he did see all that, and of course, even as a young man, he would have followed the action in the papers and every other way he could from the very beginning. I'm enthralled by that, and his words specifically on Bob Jones in 1927. Uh, I think, you, do you have a, a, a clip from oh, yeah. that that's just... You know, I just thought one of the things that, that distinguished Bernard's writing as a person covering golf is his extraordinary ability to just capture a moment with the right little scene and the right little words. So in the 1927 Open Championship at St. Andrews, um, he... Uh, Bobby Jones established a really big lead because I think he opened the tournament with a 68. And so it was kind of a Bobby's tournament from the beginning. And um, Bernard on the final day watches Bobby play the first few holes and Bobby goes three over after the first several holes. I think the first five. And then Bernard decides he better go look and see what is happening elsewhere on the golf course in case something crazy happens. And so he does, and he decides, I'll catch up with Bobby on 13 and follow him home. So by the time he gets to 13, and Bobby's coming up, he hears from the crowd that Bobby has played the holes in between 5 and 12, which is 7 holes, in 24 shots, and into now 2 under par. And then this is how he picks it up from there. After, the round, after that, the round was a triumphal procession. His second to the last hole was a little cautious and ended in the Valley of Sin, Thence he ran it up dead, and as he scaled the bank, the crowd stormed up after him and lined the edge of the green, barely restraining themselves. He holed his short one, and the next instant there was no green visible, only a dark, seething mass in the midst of which was Bobby, hoisted on fervent soldiers and holding his putter, Calamity Jane, at arm's length over his head, lest she be crushed to death. And that is the description of my favorite golf photo of all time called Carried Like a King, where the Scots lifted Bobby Jones on their shoulders and carried him off the 18th at St. Andrews. I don't know if anybody could put that in better words than he did. I would be surprised to meet that person if they were able to do it. That'd be a wonderful thing. But no, I think he's, I think he's in a class by himself as far as golf writing is concerned. And you know, even as an essayist, Connor, I think he ranks with the great essayist of all time. And I believe most most literary uh, experts would probably concur in that. I would say he's on a par with E.B. White or George Orwell as an essayist, too. You have one of those essays, right? The, the People in Front, I think, that you mentioned captures both the magic of his writing and his uncanny insight into the minds of golfers. Yeah, you know, that, that his, I think his essays are my favorite part of his writing. You know, the coverage of golf is wonderful, but it's the essays that get to the soul of the golfer that I think made me understand golf in the way that he envisioned it. 
and I think really captures what a lot of golfers feel. So this is an essay that he wrote called The People in Front. And of course, all of us who golf hate the people in front of us. <laughs> so uh, true. Yes. Because yes. They, you know, it's always too slow, especially if you're playing on this side of the pond. And, uh, and then you always, you know, you just get frustrated. So here he is. It is true that they are not, as a rule, in the least to blame for the delay. So much we grudgingly admit but it does not make their little ways the less irritating. They waggle for hours. They stroll rather than walk. They dive into their monstrous bags in search of the right club, and then it's the wrong number. But they are not sorry that we have been troubled. Their putting is a kind of funereal ping pong. We could forgive them all these tricks, from which we ourselves are conspicuously free, if it were not for the absurd punctilio with which they observe the rules. They will insist on waiting for the people in front of them when it must be palpable even to their intellects that the best shot they ever hit in their lives would be 50 yards short. Exactly. Thank you, Darwin. How many times, how many of you, I, I, I venture to guess every single person listening to this podcast has looked at the group in front of them on a par five. The guy's best tee shot in front of you at best has gone 180 yards. He's got 250 the green, and he's waiting for it to clear. That, Darwin, is genius. It sure is. And genius. I feel like any number of essays you could read of his, um, he has just so many wonderful ones. One's called Black or Silver, whether you like to clean your clubs or leave them dirty. Sure. Fabulous yeah, back when they essay. rusted. They used to rust. Yes. And uh, he, he has a wonderful essay about that. One of my favorites and that I actually used at work was an essay called uh, The Black Flag. And it's about uh, two guys uh, who play the same match every single weekend. And they don't play for money. As he put it, no filthy lucre changes hands. They, uh, the bet is that loser has to wear a black tie to work in the morning and fly the black flag of defeat. And then, of course as he puts it, so solemn of Al, has not gone unnoticed, you know, so they, and then when they see the black flag of defeat, Grant, you know, greeted with uproarious merriment. And uh, so I once photocopied this essay and left it on the desk of my CEO at the San Francisco Chronicle, because we played most weekends together, uh, played matches, and he was a far better golfer than I was and won more than, more than two thirds of the time, probably. But and I had to report to the executive committee on the status of affairs in terms of uh, losses and wins and how much money Vega was up or whatever like that. So I once proposed by putting the essay on his desk that let's not play for money anymore. Let's do this where the loser wears a black tie to work in the morning. And uh, his response couldn't be printed in a family newspaper. It's say. I love that. Um, I, think, I think you nailed it, though. I think these essays... It seems to me they freed him up, freed his mind up to talk about golf. I think when you're covering an event, you're always going to be painting the picture of the things in front of you versus the game itself. And maybe that freed up some of those beautiful, you know, just beautiful thoughts within his mind. I would agree with that, Connor. I think you put your finger right on it. You know, the essay form was very natural for him. And, uh, you know, it just... Uh, he, he had such a romance for life, and his essays reflect that. And just the littlest things, the sound your clubs make when they're rattling as you walk down the fairway, every little thing was a subject of interest to him. 
So his, would you say his greatest moment as a journalist, not as a writer, obviously, I, I mean, his books uh, are still with us today, but it was his greatest moment, the coverage of the 1913 U.S. Open? And would you mind diving into that? No, I wouldn't. I certainly would say that that's what he's probably remembered for by an awful lot of American listeners. You know, um, the people in the United States uh, are, you know, that movie was a, was, a, was a really successful film, The Greatest Game Ever Played. Uh, and he's in that movie because he, he performs as the marker for Francis We Met in the playoff itself against Varden and Ray. Once again, he came over to cover the event, which he did with absolute distinction. And uh, so he's, he's keeping Francis's score at the end of that. And of course, he is the most rabid fan, as we discussed earlier, and he naturally wants for Varden or Ray to win. And, uh, and it reminded him, covering it and watching it down the stretch, of something that happened in 1904 when he played in the amateur at Sandwich. And Walter Travis, who was born in Australia but adopted America as his country and became you know, a two-time amateur champion at the point that he went over to Sandwich, and he was really the first serious American to come over and try to take a British championship. And he actually won the British amateur, uh, much to the shock and chagrin of everyone in Britain. The writers would commonly refer to it as the first sign of the American menace spreading its dark shadow over the land. So after when he, as he's watching that final round, that is coming back to his mind. And so we'll do another little reading here. Watching that fight was in some ways rather like watching Mr. Travis at Sandwich. We had begun by not being at all frightened of Mr. Travis, and then gradually, as he got further and further through, a deadly terror had seized us by the throat. Similarly, I, a lonely Briton, had set out with that tie, not very much perturbed about Francis we met. He had done incredibly glorious things, and whatever happened, the moral victory was his. But he had had a night to sleep, or lie awake, on the ordeal before him, and surely he could not be going to beat both Varden and Ray. And then, slowly and relentlessly, it was borne in on me that he was matching them stroke for stroke, that it was going to be a horribly close-run thing, and finally, that my men were going to be beaten. There was a difference, however, between the Battle of Sandwich and the Battle of Brookline. At Sandwich, one had continued to pray passionately to the very end that Mr. Travis should be beaten. At Brookline, there came a moment that one felt it would be an outrage if this young American hero did not win. As I watched him make ready to play his second shot to the home hole, I realized that all my heart was now with him. If by some hard miracle he had put his ball into the watery, muddy bunker in front of the green, no American patriot could have been more distressed than I should have been. Wow. The fact that I think amazes me here during the writing of this, and as you're following along of with him as a marker watching We Met, is that he does something that I think few, a few of us would be able to do, and that's drop the national pride and just become a true fan of golf. I think that's a wonderful point, Connor. And I, I feel like that is probably the pinnacle of its demonstration that he loved the game above all things. And he just could not believe the display Francis had put on. Francis is 19 then or 20. And, uh, and just to see a young man like that stand up to the greatest players in the world, I just think he, he admired it so that he, that he wanted it to happen. 
Yeah, that piece, I, I'm glad you chose that piece because obviously it's beautifully written. I mean, it's, it's Darwin, it's beautifully written, but it really takes you through that transition of national pride to golf pride. And then he, he basically feels not only for uh, the Americans in this hopeful champion, but then turns the tide and joins them. It's, yeah. it's beautiful. It's it is just, wonderful. It's beautiful. Um, moving on here, and maybe looking back, what is Bernard Darwin's importance to the game of golf? I would say that Bernard Darwin created the art of literary golf writing. You know, there was a lot of fine writing before him, including Hutchinson, and that was quite well done. But I think Bernard raised it to a new level, much in the way that Tommy raised golf to a new level. I think Bernard did that for golf writing. Golf, I think, is generally agreed to have the finest literature of any game. And I think the root of that is Bernard. Uh, He really set the tone for the writers who followed him and attracted a lot of great writers to the game, like Pat Ward Thomas and Herbert Warren Wind. Charles Price and others like that were giant Bernard Darwin fans. And Herbert Warren Wynn once wrote that he did not know of any serious golf writer who wasn't drawn to the game and to the art of golf writing by reading Bernard Darwin. And so I think that is his principal, comp, you know, principal contribution to the game. And in 1934, he was made a commander of the British Empire in recognition of his contributions to literary golf writing and to golf itself. So that was a pretty, pretty big honor for him. Uh, he also became the captain of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club at St. Andrews in 1934. He was knighted in 37 and became captain of the Royal Ancient Golf Club in 34, which he's one of a handful of people who are not Scots to, to receive that honor. So yeah. he was recognized. And one of them he was the marker for in the U.S. Open. Yes, exactly. Francis Wiebeck got that honor many years later. And uh, so I think he is he is the foundation of all great golf writing, and that's his biggest contribution. But he also I feel like one of his other major contributions is that idea we spoke about at the very beginning, Connor, keeping alive the stories of heroes of old and making people understand that golf had this glorious history that needs to be preserved and remembered. And I do think a lot of people who have taken up the goal of preserving it myself, I would count among them. Um, were inspired to do it by his work. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think we're both on that same path, and we can probably uh, you know, do a family tree that goes back to Darwin and what he did for popularizing the heroes of the game. I would agree, Connor, completely. Do you think he had any idea of his place in the game, that his words would be shared for eons to come? That's a hard question to answer. Uh, it's a great question. I would say yes. You know, Bernard was a pretty confident person, so I would think he would recognize that his work was widely known and, and had high impact. You know, Bernard did not get a byline for any of his stories in the Times. He was just listed as our golfing correspondent, as all the ones before him and afterwards were for a period of time. But everyone knew who it was, you know, and he was a giant figure in the game all of his friends called him bernardo uh but he he actually was more of a victorian preferred everyone to be called by their last name mr darwin mr smith mr proctor he was very formal he didn't like the use of christian names he has a wonderful essay about that 
impact clouds away is the later books. But he um, he definitely, I think, understood his place in the game. But, you know, you never know. Uh, Mr. Darwin uh, celebrated a fairly good life. How did his twilight years treat him? You know, it's 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 strange. So many sad things happen in late life. Just the way Bobby Jones was crippled at the end of his life, Bernard got a very severe case of gout in his later years. And so for a good portion of the end of his work, he worked for the Times up till 1953, and he had died in 1961. So toward the end of his years covering golf for the Times, he was not able to walk around the course. You know, we have modern treatments for gout, but at the time they didn't exist. And so he, he became unable to walk around the course and unable to play eventually. He had to give up the game. And um, so he he suffered more and more. And of course, he he died in a nursing home in Sussex, ultimately at the age of 85. Uh, But his mind was sharp until the end. So he had kind of an unfortunate decline, particularly in terms of being able to play the game or being able to cover it the way he wanted to. He had to get runners to help him when he covered things. In fact, Herbert Warren Wind helped him with that one day in covering a match. And that's how they became friends. So it was a tough end for him. That's sad. Um, remembering him, uh, what books would you recommend for our listeners to read? If, if they want to study up on Darwin, I suggest they should, just for the pure beauty of his words and the love that he had for the game. What works of Darwin would you recommend? Well, if you were only going to buy one, I would tell you to buy Playing the Like. That has an opening section called Heroes of Old, That includes essays on John Ball, Fred Tate, Harold Hilton, John Henry Taylor, Harry Varden, James Braid, and Sandy Hurd, which were really all the main heroes of the generation that Bernard Darwin lived through and covered up to the war. Um, That I love. If you get a book called um, Mostly Golf that was edited by Peter Ride, I would recommend that not only for the essays in it, but because Peter Ride's forward in that book is pretty remarkable essay on the life and importance of Bernard Darwin. So I, I enjoy those two. His book, you know, obviously Golf Courses of the British Isles, as we've discussed. And the other two that I think of as part of the essential Bernard are A History of Golf in Britain, which is a wonderful way to understand in a very general overview how the game evolved from Tommy all the way up through the greats uh, before the war. And then Golf Between Two Wars is another very similar sort of history book. Those I would think of as the essential Bernard. What does Darwin mean to you? You know, as a writer, as a historian, what, what's your t- what, what do you take away from Darwin? Darwin is easily my favorite in my top five writers of all time, including all types of books. I've been a pretty voracious reader throughout life, you know, reading quite a lot of novels and essays. And I wouldn't be able to make any top five that didn't have Bernard in it, probably in the top three. So he, he's been a big inspiration to me as a person who has always loved writing. Uh, and, you know, I aspire to, um, you know, to write something that sounds beautiful the way Bernard's things sound. I'm, I've never put myself in Bernard's categories. It's a big giant gap between Bernard and almost everyone who writes. But one of my big goals, and it's partly Bernard related, is I want the things I write to sound beautiful when they're read aloud. 
And that, I think, is a distinguishing feature of what Bernard does. Is It's musical, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I think so you, you read it so well today, too. I mean, I think you did his words justice. Well, thank you very much, Connor. You know, I'm a big person on reading aloud. Bernard was huge on that, partly because that was the way Victorians entertained themselves, you know, before television and radio and all that. They read, read to each other in the parlor, and Bernard loved reading aloud. So part of the reason that I thought we should read his work aloud is partly that it sounds beautiful and partly as sort of an homage to him as a person who loved reading aloud. So I would say that, you know, and of course, interest in the, in the heroes of the game. I, I, you know, I, it, one of the criticisms of my book about Tommy was that it was maybe a little bit of a hero worshiper book. And I'm, I'm unrepentant about that. <laughs> uh, uh, but but um, I do think he's influenced me in, in both of those ways. You do another thing on, uh, maybe you could share what you do on Twitter on Sundays to yes, celebrate. I, um, when I first got on Twitter, you know, obviously I did it mostly because my children made me. I've not been a big social media person, but they insisted that I had to do it if I had a book out to, to help people get word about the book. And that was originally why I went on. But I realized soon after doing it that, you know, you have to have something that you're contributing to the conversation if anybody is going to come and look at you and follow you. And um, I started to think, well, what, what do I know? <laughs> what, what could I add? And uh, mostly what I felt like I could add is I've done a huge amount of study of golf writing, not just Bernard, but golf writing generally. And so I started by doing uh, every Sunday posting a little thing on Bernard that I call, it's Sunday, it's Darwin Day. And that, that's gotten a lot of attraction, you know, and then during the week, I'll often post things just great golf writing by others. Yeah, I love, I love Darwin Day. I look forward to it every Sunday. It's one of the things I kind of get up for and, and check out what is uh, Mr. Proctor put out there about Mr. Darwin. You know, it's fun because I've had a couple people, you know, obviously some days you're busy and you don't get to it right away in the morning. One, one morning on a Sunday at 11 o'clock, I hadn't put anything up yet. And a couple people sent me messages like, isn't there going to be a Darwin? And uh, so that made, me, that made me feel good. And I do think, you know, one of my goals is to try to introduce people to some of the great writers of the game that they maybe haven't read and starting with Bernard. How do you pick those pieces? Are they relevant to things in the golf world today or are they random? How do you go about picking out your best Darwin pieces? Well, I try to do it on three different little levels. One is I try to do some of it about his golf course writing and architectural writing, like from the golf course to the British Isles every so often. I like to post mostly the essays because I think that's what people relate to the most. And then every so often I'll post something about a player. And if, you know, obviously if a player is having a certain birthday or an occasion, anniversary occasion, I'll tend to post something from Bernard on that player, you know, Tommy's birthday or John Ball's birthday or whatever. Uh, but I, I focus principally on the essays because I feel like that's where, that's what's most universal. Yeah. Uh, one last question for you. Maybe it's two-parter, but what is the legacy of Bernard Darwin? And how best can we pay homage to the man? I would say the legacy of Bernard Darwin, as we discussed a minute ago, is that he set the tone for golf writing, and he is the greatest golf writer ever, and possibly one of the greatest writers ever on sport of any kind. That also, he had a love of the game that I think is critically important to our enjoyment of it, and that in reading Bernard, you connect to the soul of the game in a way I believe you never would have otherwise. And it will make you enjoy the game more than you ever have. 
and to understand its eccentricities and the way that it works on your mind and can drive you out of your mind. I think he really helps you understand why the game is beautiful and why you love it so much. That, I think, is his biggest legacy. Yeah. I, you know, when I read specifically his essays, my major takeaway is you're not alone. <laughs> like all of that the struggles is- he talks about. We've all been there. You know, all those things we love, the clinking of the clubs, the, the, the feel, almost a taste of a perfect shot. He spells them out so perfectly that we realize that we're all kind of the same when we're playing golf. That, I think, is wonderful, Connor, and that's a beautiful place to end because that's exactly what he does. Well, Darwin celebrated golf for what it is, a game. He celebrated the golf courses, the majors, and ultimately its heroes through the eyes of his own bias for the love of the game. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the Talking Golf History Podcast to talk about Mr. Darwin. It was an absolute blast, Connor. I love the work you do. Uh, you, You do a really great thing for golf, so I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you so much. And keep writing. I want to read this next book. I think it's coming out next year. I'm just kidding. I hope. <laughs> uh, if, if I get lucky, I'll be able to sell it by springtime. Then it'd probably be a year after that. I'm so excited for it. And I'm not even, not even in jest. I, as excited as I was to read Monarch of the Green, this one really is a book for Connor. This is like the book that, I, I, out of all the anticipated books that I've read about coming out, Yours might be the one that's the top of that list. Well, that's nice, Connor. I'm glad to hear it. I hope others feel the same way. And I I actually am feeling very confident that it'll be as good as the Tommy book and perhaps even better. That's fantastic. Well, folks, uh, we're talking to Stephen Proctor, who is the author of Monarch of the Green. Uh, And I want you folks to go out to Amazon, check it out, go buy it. Uh, It's a fantastic book. You'll never learn more factual information about young Tom Morris, who literally built the game upon his shoulders and made it to the game we all love today. Uh, Thank you again, Stephen. And folks at home, play well, be safe, wear a mask. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.